You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. Real good. Thanking you. Get my multifaceted Bible notebook organized here. I'm still learning. It's uh, very much of a challenge. I've been trying to find out how to underline things, but it won't. I can't get it to work. I wrote a lot of stuff, and then I thought, oh, I need to underline that, and it went somewhere. (laughs) I don't know where. Maybe the black hole. (laughs) I want to do something a little different tonight. Uh, I have a reason for it. And my reason is that I feel in the Holy Ghost, that's the way we should go. And uh, that's the way we will go. Uh, I want to share some stuff. Uh, how many of you ever read Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life? Three, four, one, two, three. This was printed back in 1957, I think. It was the first time it was printed in English. It was written in Chinese long before that. But uh, 1957 was the first time it was printed in English. I remember reading it in the early 60s, 61 or 2, and uh, I wouldn't know how many copies of it I've had over the years. Uh, Subsequently bought the Christian, the uh, spiritual man, in a three-volume set, and uh, one of the books that impacted my life probably more than any other book of Watchman Knees was quite a thick book called The Ministry of the Word. And it really was a, a book aimed for people who want to be preachers of the Word. And it, uh, it talked about the whole uh, gamut of uh, delivering the Word of God and ministering the Word of God. And that has been a, had a great impact on me. Early this week when I was praying about tonight's meeting, the phrase, the normal Christian life, kept coming to me, the normal Christian life. I said, Lord, I've got a a Sunday morning sermon to get through first before I get to the night meeting. But anyway, this kept coming to me. Every time I'd start praying, the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life. So uh, I I dug out, I had to do a bit of searching because I'd given away most of my books, but I had to do some searching to come up with uh, a copy of it, but I found this one, which is one of the many ones along uh, the way. And uh, I just want to read to you the first sentence of the book. He said, uh, what is the normal Christian life? That's how he starts the book. What is the normal Christian life? Then he says, we do well to ponder that question. It is very different from the average Christian. Now think about that for a little bit. Very different from the average Christian. Well, what is an average Christian? <laughs> well, let's... Uh, don't get offended with me. Don't get upset with me. We're going to run an experiment. <laughs> Those that know me get a bit wary of me. <laughs> okay. Um, do you lose your temper very often? You don't have to sing out and answer it. You had any lustful thoughts today? Do you ever swear? Do you swear often? Do you read your Bible enough? How strong is your prayer life? Now, the answers to those questions don't matter. They're between you and God. What does matter is how you arrived at the answers. Did you arrive at the answers by comparing your life with someone else? That's what most people do. They just compare their life with another Christian or someone they look up to or someone they don't look up to. And so you've got to have someone that you compare your life with. If you... 
If you did that, if you arrived at your answer by comparing yourself with someone else, then that's what we call the law of averaging. And that means you're an average Christian. If you compared your life with Jesus, well then, you'd be probably one of a very small minority of people that would do that. And uh, you see, Jesus is the only measuring tape that we can use when it comes to ascertaining what is a normal Christian. (laughs) If he is normal, then everything else is abnormal. And God, I, I'm, I, I got to tell you the truth. God boxed me in a corner this week. I've had more revelation this week than I've had in years on a number of subjects. God boxed me in a corner and I said, God, I've seen a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. I've seen your hand extended, but I am abnormal in my Christian life. And that's a bit of pill to swallow after as many years of ministry that I've been in. I've seen some powerful things happen. I've seen lives set free, demons screaming out of people, miracles happening, bones restructured into people's bodies that weren't even there before. I've seen that all. That I'm abnormal. when you compare yourself with Jesus Christ. I want to I want a quote from another one of Watchman Nee's books, if I can find it. <laughs> Please. This is what Watchman Nee says in a book, To Win in Life. From the Holy Scriptures we may see that the life as ordained by God for Christians is one full of joy and rest, one that is uninterrupted communion with God. It's in perfect harmony with his will. It's a life that doesn't thirst and hunger after the world. It walks outside of sins and that transcends all things. Indeed, it is a holy, powerful and victorious life, one that constitutes knowing God's will and having continuous fellowship with him. The life which God has ordained for Christians is a life that is hid with Christ in God. Nothing can touch, affect or shake this life. As Christ is unshakable, so we are unshakable. As Christ transcends all things, we also transcend all things. As Christ is before God, so are we before God. Let us never entertain the thought that we should be weak and defeated. There is no such thing as weakness and defeat, for Christ is our life, as declared in Colossians 3, 4. He transcends all. He cannot be touched by anything. Hallelujah. This is the life of Christ. This is just quoting Watchman Nee. The life ordained for Christians is a life full of rest, a life full of joy, full of power, and full of the will of God. Let us inquire of ourselves as to what sort of life we are living today. If our life is not what God has ordained it to be, then we need to know victory. Hence we shall look into this matter of our experience and what we shall relate here may not be pleasing to our ears because some of us are rather pathetic. Yet we need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves in order that we may see our lack and receive grace from God. 
I'm probably getting soft in my old age, but I tell you what, that cracked me up when I read that. Watchman Nee was not a Pentecostal. Watchman Nee did not know the depths of the things of the Spirit that we play with. He didn't know those things the way we have experienced it and seen it. He didn't taste of the world to come like we have tasted of that. The powers of the world to come, as the writer in the New Testament calls it. And I want to add to that from a Pentecostal perspective. Can I do that? I want to, I want to do it in what I consider to be a very safe manner. In saying that, I'm only going to read what the Bible says. That would be safe, wouldn't it? You're not getting my thoughts. I'm only going to give you what the Bible says, but I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm not going to say it in King James English. I'm just going to paraphrase it so that I can put it all together so that we might think about it a little bit for a moment or two. Every normal Christian has a spiritual river of water flowing out of their innermost beings. Is that true? John 7, 38. The same river that flows from the throne of God, it brings life and healing to the nations. This water quenched all their spiritual hunger. They now carry a fountain of water that releases eternal life everywhere they go. They each have had an encounter and an experience with the Almighty God where they went through a mystical transformation of being born again. <laughs> they were given the very mind of Christ. They walked as new creatures on the earth, as partakers of his divine nature. When they spoke, they considered the words that they spoke to be the very oracle of God. They had prayer meetings where the building was shaken by the power of God. Their shadow falling on people caused healing to happen to them. Articles from their clothing were sent out and healed diseases. They had so many ordinary miracles happening that they had to come up with a category of miracles called extraordinary. One of the church leaders even rebuked the Christians for acting like ordinary humans. <laughs> Their perspective was that they were seated in heavenly places with Christ. They were ambassadors sent from heaven as representatives of God to bring reconciliation to all mankind. Everybody in the church was considered to be a king and a priest, as well as a citizen of heaven. The almighty creator of the universe was known to them by other names, such as friend and beloved and father and daddy. <laughs> when they performed miracles... The sorcerers and the magicians offered them money that they might be able to do that. <laughs> you ever had anyone lately offer to give you money if you could tell them how to do it? When they were persecuted and jailed, angels came and let them out. They had gatherings of people who were so, they were so hungry for God that they, their meetings lasted all night. On one occasion, a fellow went to sleep sitting up in a window and he fell out the window, crashed onto the concrete floor. I suppose it was concrete anyway, it was hard. And he got he killed him. And when they ran down there, he's dead. But they raised him from the dead. Then there was a time when a snake bit one of them. But he held it over the fire until it fell off. And it didn't affect him at all. They walked in so much spiritual power and authority that the Holy Spirit had to block them from going on one of their missionary trips. This is what many of the world would, many of us would call a revival of astronomical proportions. And I'm convinced after reading that and after listening to Watchman Lee, what he says, that's normal Christianity. 
That's normal Christianity. I just hope I can hold it together, folks. Because I look back on, on wasted years. People telling me you should retire, you've done a good, you've had a good innings, retire. I've wasted. The last 10 years of my life just have been wasted, really. I haven't been much value to anybody. A few. But nothing to what I could have been. We are not to live our lives by the standard of those around about us. We're not to live it to a standard that some church may require. The only one we can compare our lives to is Christ himself. One of the problems that happens if you pray and seek God in this last six weeks, I have prayed and sought God more than I have probably on a regular basis for a long, long time. Fasting, praying. But when you do that, you start to feel God's heart. And you start to feel the anguish in God's heart as he looks at a family that seems to be lost in the wilderness and not fulfilling the calling that he has put within our lives. We do so many things thinking we're doing great strokes. What we're doing is abnormal. When we make the mistake of thinking average is normal, We, let, we end up living a long way below what God wants us to live, how God wants us to live. Average is abnormal, folks. Average is abnormal. I don't like looking back and I've seen so many powerful things happen in my past life. I don't like looking back. I look back to times where every day I had the word of the Lord. You'd go into a meeting, I knew exactly what was wrong in the meeting. I knew what controlling spirits were in the meeting. People got healed. People got set free. Demons screaming out of people in the meetings. I thought that was normal. People convinced me it wasn't. But now I realize it was normal. That's what should have been happening. I've had the professional firefighters throw so much water over me, try to get me to water down the ministry that God gave me, try to shut down the prophetic in my life. Well, I got news for him. I might be 81, but I'm coming alive. Lazarus is coming out of the grave. And if I got to die preaching, I'll die preaching. But I tell you what, this old bloke's got some life left in him yet. And there's some stirring up that's coming. Listen, folks, I'm glad there's not a big crowd here tonight because I got some hard things to say. And I've got a purpose in what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm not a novice at this stuff. I'm not mucking around. Normal is a personal responsibility. You could preach for an hour on that. Being normal is a personal responsibility. Revival is not something that comes from outer space. Revival is not something that comes in the evangelist's briefcase when he comes. I've gone places when I was in an itinerating ministry and honestly people think the revival's going to come with you. It doesn't come with the evangelist. It doesn't come with the prophet. He can prophesy over everybody, but that don't bring a revival. I'm sorry, folks. Revival does not exist. 
It's a word we use to somehow describe someone who is living like Jesus would live. And when you start to live like Jesus lived, you've got revival. (laughs) I've got to be careful or I'll get excited. So the question should never be, where is a revival? (laughs) We should be asking, who is a revival? Who is a revival? And we have to go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and say, you're the problem. We've got to look at ourselves and we've got to take responsibility for ourselves. You can't blame Pastor Marty for your spiritual condition. So many people want to criticise the leadership. They ought to do a spell in leadership. That would cure them of that once and for all. So many people want to blame somebody else for their lack of spirituality. You can't blame somebody else. I get sick and tired of all these people that run around saying, oh, it's generational sins. You've got to go back and rake over your forefathers and all that stuff. Tommy Rot. The buck stops right here. We've got to deal with our life. I'm sorry if I'm stirred up, but I've been stirred up all day. (laughs) You and I are the answer to the question. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Like I was trying to share out of Proverbs this morning, the book of Proverbs is full of Hebraisms. What it's saying has a natural understanding, but you have to understand the spiritual implications of it. What he's saying here is there's a fire in our bosom, but if we don't keep putting wood on it, the fire goes out. And we can't blame somebody else for that. That's our responsibility. We have to gather wood. Have you been gathering wood for your fire? What's the condition of your fire? God gave them symbol after symbol, type after type, shadow after shadow in the Old Testament about the priests having to trim the lamps, drag drag the ashes out of the altar, all the stuff that is stuff that has to be applied to our lives. We have to drag the ashes of last week's experience out of our lives, put new wood on the fire and get on fire for God. I tell you, there has to come a major shift in our thinking. And it is a major shift in our thinking if we are prepared to come to grips with the fact that revival is a personal responsibility. It's a personal responsibility that we have to make that I'm going to live like Jesus. That's why we have to renew our minds constantly. This world wants us to think like it thinks. And there's new stuff being thrown at us every day and it wants to think the way it thinks. The big thing at the moment, of course, is equality in marriage, same-sex marriage, all of that stuff. That's what the enemy is wanting us to think about and wanting us to accept. How can we accept that sort of stuff? We can't. Because we know the one who lives within us, we know his standard. We know what his declarations are about that stuff. And so we have to take the word of God and we have to renew our minds. Folks, revival is not a formula. It's a right understanding of God's word. And it's a lifestyle that goes in accordance to that. Too often, we are like thermostats. Every car engine has got a thermostat in it. 
And we're like thermostats. Now, that's not really right. I have missed it. I'm getting too excited. Lord, calm me down. We're like thermometers. Whatever climate we're in, that's the temperature we are. If we go out here with the unsaved, that's the temperature we are. If we get in church on Sunday and we get all fired up, oh, we rise the temperature a bit. But we're just thermometers, we just register. Jesus, on the other hand, was a thermostat. He changed the normal. He raised the temperature everywhere he went. And I tell you what, you and I need to be thermostats that raise the temperature. We raise the spiritual climate. We come into a situation and people stop swearing. I've had it happen many times when I worked in Melbourne University. You could nearly hear the whisper go, psst, barrel's coming. And everyone has stopped telling their dirty stories. People had stopped swearing. The amazing part about it was there wasn't a week go by where I didn't lead someone to the Lord. And I'm working there as a technical officer in engineering. But people came all the time wanting help. God just gave me incredible open door like the scripture says, an effectual open door. And God allowed me to just raise the temperature everywhere we were. And it was, I'm so, one of the most powerful years of my life was when I was working there. Jesus just changed the temperature everywhere he went. Charles Finney did it. I guess many of you have read Charles Finney's. The biographies of him. Get on a train. People come under incredible conviction. So he'd have a revival meeting on the train. No matter where he went, people would come under conviction. Some of us, I know Luke is, and others probably uh, are reading Wigglesworth's Daily Devotional. Wigglesworth was one that changed the temperature everywhere he went. People came under conviction of sin. People became aware that God was real simply because he came there. Catherine Kuhlman did it. Want to come a little bit closer to home? Catherine Kuhlman was like that. When she went into a meeting, people started getting healed everywhere. And she really didn't. She used to just keep saying, there's someone up there getting healed right now. There's someone down there being healed. There's someone over there with a black coat and they're just being healed. And so she would just uh, describe the things that were happening in the spirit realm. Why? Because she came into the meeting and the normality of her Christ life started to affect the situation. I think it's time that someone from Generation City Church started lifting the temperature. Well, let it be us. There's more than enough here tonight to change the temperature in Newcastle. You game enough? Finney was asked one time, would he define revival? I said, it's very simple. He said, draw a circle on the ground around you. He said, that's where revival is. The airlines of Australia made themselves millions of dollars out of Christians going to America to get revival. I know, I went over. <laughs> Marty went over. But we couldn't bring it home in our suitcase. It wouldn't get it in the couldn't get it in the bag. Because it's a nebulous thing, because it's, it's here, in here. That's where it is. There's an old saying. You've probably heard it. If it has to be, it's up to me. 
Are you prepared to get a hold of that and say, Newcastle needs a revival. It's up to me. It's up to me. Don't be slack like me. In the past, I've said, no, I've had my shot at it. Let some of the young bucks have a go. No, there's plenty of preachers around. Let them have a go. I've, I've done my hard yards. I've done my overseas missionary work. I've travelled in that many countries. And I've done all that stuff. Ah, oh, let the young blokes have a go. Oh, what a terrible mistake I made. God's forgiven me, but I tell you what, I've got to try and catch up. Wasted years. Wasted time. So if you hear about some extraordinary things happening out there in the marketplace, then just have a little grin and say, that's hard and barrels up to it again. Because <laughs> I'm aiming to make a bit of a dint in the whole show here in the next little while. Uh, I tell you, I'm sorry. You can't live off anybody else's revival. You've got to have one your own. You can't do it. I've seen so many people who have tried to live off my revival. The first church, well, it's not, it's the second church I ever pastored. I was trying to run an earth-moving business at the same time. And I said, God, we've got to have a revival in this place. It's just the same old, same old, week in, week out, same old, same old. Three hymns and two choruses, some testimonies that were as dead as Julius Caesar. And I said, oh, dear God. <laughs> and I'm stuck with pastor in the place. Well, actually, I was the assistant pastor, but I was getting the responsibility of all the ministry. And it really just was really driving me crazy. And I don't know whether... I have told the story, but I don't know whether I've ever told it in church. I was driving a bulldozer. And I'd finished the job that I was doing. I was digging out stumps on a farm. I finished the job and I was driving the tractor across to another farm down the road a little bit. I stood up under the canopy with the big mesh canopy steel canopy and I hung onto a piece of pipe that went across there about that high. I hung onto that while the tractor was just going straight across the paddock. And I cried out with all the fervour of my heart. I said, God, if there's not more to Pentecost than what I got, I'm going to give it away. I'm sick to the neck of the whole show. I know how to drive a bulldozer. I don't know how to pastor people. And clear as me talking to you, the Holy Spirit said, you have not been fair income yet. Well, I cried and I cried and I cried. I said, oh God, how much more? I'm doing three days on the bulldozer or four days on the bulldozer, three days looking after the church and you're saying I'm not fair dinkum. My business wasn't succeeding like it should have been because I wasn't putting all my time into it because I'd nearly get a job finished and then I'd have to go on off looking after the church. And the farmers used to get upset with me because I didn't finish the job and I knew that wasn't going down real well. And I felt like I needed to put more time into the church. And so I was torn between a rock and a hard place. And I said, oh, God. And God says, you're not fair income. Oh, God, come off it. I knew God was calling me to fast. I, I had fasted a few times in my life. I'd forgotten to take my lunch with me. And that's all I knew about it. I'd never read any books on fasting. I'd heard people talk about it, but that anyone to fast, something wrong with them. And so I knew innately within me that God was saying, God, I want you to fast. And I said, I don't know anything about fasting. He said, you drink water and you eat nothing. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I started cold turkey the next morning. 
I used to get up early in the morning and pray, seek God, read the Word, make myself organized, get the kids organized, the bit I had the responsibility for, then I'd go to work. I'd work from 8 o'clock till 12 o'clock. Then I'd sit in the ute for an hour praying, reading my Bible, drinking water. Start work again at 1 o'clock, knock off at 5 o'clock, go home, do what had to be done, any other jobs that had to be done around the place when it came tea time. I'd go and hide myself. Couldn't bear to see people eating. <laughs> and I love, absolutely love macaroni cheese. And Pat would cook it while I was fasting. <laughs> and there's these, all these hungry little kids hocking into this macaroni. And she'd make tuna mornay with tuna in with the macaroni and and I'm fasting anyway I knew God was serious God's still serious folks I had no idea what was going to happen to me or what happened to the church or what was going to happen to anybody. I had no idea. All I knew that God was serious and I wasn't fair dinkum. And so I just kept working, driving the bulldozer every day, fasting, drinking water. You know, after two or three days, you don't get hungry anymore. Matter of fact, after about four or five days, I rather liked it. It was quite good. And water tasted pretty good too. Comes the next Sunday, the second Sunday. I, I used to have a, we had a, our youngest child had only not long been born and he used to suffer from colic. You know what colic is? Poor little cootie used to cry and cry and cry and cry and Pat would be awake all the time trying to... So come Saturday night, Pat would go to bed and I would put our youngest bloke over my shoulder. We had a lounge room that was 30 foot long. It actually was two rooms, but they'd taken the wall out and the lounge room was 30 foot long and 12 foot wide. And so I would walk up and down the lounge room with him over my shoulder, patting him on the back like that, and he would sleep just as sound as anything. And so, not only did he sleep, but Pat would sleep, which he didn't get a lot of. And so I would spend all night walking up and down the lounge room saying, Oh, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I want you to break loose. You've got to break loose, God. You've got to break loose by your spirit. Do whatever you've got to do in me. Do whatever you've got to do in the church. But we've got to have your presence in the place. We've got to have your presence. I tell you, I can feel the intensity of it. Now, all these years later, I go, oh, if you can't handle it, you can go home. That's all right. I won't be offended. used to come daylight or more. I'd go and have a shower and get myself dressed and I'd go straight to church from my prayer time. I'll never forget that Sunday. I didn't know what I was going to preach on. I didn't even know what was going to happen. I had no idea. But I knew God was in control. And so... We had our two hymns and three choruses. <laughs> we didn't have a testimony time. <laughs> I got up to preach. People started crying in the meeting. One young fellow ran down to the older one to get saved. I had to even open my mouth. I said, God, I don't know what's going on. You better let me know what's going on. 
we entered into a time that has changed my life so much that I can never put up with anything less than the presence of God. God, that way I couldn't shake hands with people, they'd fall on the floor. Couldn't touch people, they'd fall on the floor. I was a danger to be near. But I tell you what, so many people got rid of sin in their lives without me having to say anything to them. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be there. That's what God wants you and I to be like in 2016. He wants us to be so filled with his presence and power that we only just have to be there. You won't believe it, or you might. <laughs> the executive of the Assemblies of God did all they could to shut me down. Did all they could to throw as much water on me and put the fire out as they possibly could. Did it a funny way. They said, we want you to take credentials. I didn't have credentials. I said, what do you want credentials for? You wanted me to take credentials, you've got to have credentials. If you're pastoring a church, you've got to have credentials. And I said, I said to the Lord, what, what, what? He said, don't take them. I said, why not? Everyone has credentials. If they're pastoring a church, you're supposed to have credentials. That's the way it goes. He said, don't take them. Well, I got a bit muffed by that. I said, well, why not? He said, because they only want to take them off you again to embarrass you. Oh, I said, no, sorry, I don't want them. I think I got some from above. <laughs> and so I, I ministered for a long time without any credentials. One of the executive men in latter years, when I was on the executive, <laughs> said to me, I guess you were puzzled about why the executive wanted you to take credentials. And I said, yeah, well, I, I was puzzled, but I said I knew why you wanted me to have them. And he got a bit of a silly look on his face. He said, why? I said, because you wanted to take them off me. His eyes were as big as saucers. He said, how did you know that? I said, well, that's what the Holy Ghost told me. He said, that's... The superintendent at that time was so put out by a revival happening 40 miles away from where he was the pastor and half his people used to come to our meetings and that miffed him off real good and he could have embarrassed me, he would have. Anyway, we had a revival. And I'll tell you something, folks. Newcastle needs a revival. Needs a move of God. And it's got to start with us. It's got to start in here. It's got to start. We've repackaged the gospel. We've done it. I could tell you stuff here for hours. We've repackaged the gospel thinking we're doing what people want. We're not doing what people want. What people want is the presence of God. Nothing else satisfies the longing of the human heart like the presence of God. You say, no, oh, we've done everything. We've repackaged the gospel. We've changed our meetings. We've restructured them. We've made them short. We've made them funny. We've made them nice. We've done all sorts of things, but it hasn't worked. It's not brought any revival. Jesus didn't even have a building. He didn't have any funny sermons. He didn't have any PowerPoint illustrations. He, he didn't have any music. Get massive crowds followed him everywhere he went.
Oh, folks. I've messed it all up tonight. I wasn't planning to do any of this sort of thing. It's just, um, you know, the only people that wanted to get rid of Jesus was the religious leaders. Religious leaders. I, I've been around religious leaders for most of my life. 61 years in Pentecost, I've been around a lot of religious leaders. I found out something about religious leaders. Religious leaders compare themselves with one another. They don't compare themselves with Jesus. I'm doing better than the church down the road. We got more, you know. I've heard all that stuff. I know all about it. You might say to yourself, well... That was Jesus. That, that was Jesus. Buckle your seatbelt, folks. I want to read what Jesus said. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will even do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Have you ever read that? That's what Jesus said. He was talking about going to the Father in order that the Holy Spirit might come to empower and equip us to do greater works than what he had done. I think we've been sold a pup. Or is that too bushy a saying for you? Anyone here know what that means? We've been sold a pup. Mahatma Gandhi. You've heard of Mahatma Gandhi? Great statesman of India in bygone days. Went to university in England. Was on his way back to India. He knew there was more to life than what he had experienced. And so he started doing a, a search around the churches saw their massive buildings, studied their stained glass windows and everything else. But he didn't find God anywhere. So he read a Bible through and through and through and through. He made the statement, I love the Christ but I can't handle the Christians. They are not like their Christ. I didn't make that up. You go on the web, www, brainy quotes. That's where you get it, and a lot of other things. I wonder to myself what India would have been like if had he found the Christ. when he was searching for reality, if he'd have found Christ, what India would have been like today. But he didn't, he didn't find Christ, unfortunately. That's enough, folks. Little, little Christianity, Christian, the word Christian, means little Christs. <laughs> Yet we glibly call ourselves Christians. Are we little Christs? Who are we a little Christ to? I've had people that I've been endeavouring to witness to people I've had Christians, I mean, unsaved people say to me, you Christians have got more problems than us. I worked alongside of a man for several years in order, I wanted to win him to the Lord. He was a lovely man and I had great time for him, great respect for him and we had respect for each other. He was an engineer, I was working in that field at the time. 
And uh, just so happened, one day we'd shut the shop down and he just seemed as though he wanted to talk. And so we just talked about life. And we got around to talking about eternity. We got talking about the need to be saved. And I, I just shared the gospel with him and everything else. And I was excited in myself and I'm praying while I'm sharing. I said, Lord, just save this man. Just when I thought it, he was at a place where I could draw the fish in. He mentioned the man's name. He said, do you know? And he mentioned the fellow's name. I said, oh, dear God. What did he have to mention him for? This fellow was a member of one of our local churches. But he was a womanizer. How many women he had been in adultery with. It wasn't funny. And everybody in town knew it. And yet he was professing Christian in one of our evangelical churches. And I thought, oh, God. I said, yeah, I, I know him. And I said, God, you've got to help me. Give me something to say sensible, something sensible. And that quick this thought came to me and so I said to him I said you ever bought a case of apples <laughs> he started laughing he said yeah there's a few rotten ones in every box <laughs> I said thank you Lord and he said do you know and he mentioned another man <laughs> I knew this man I knew him like the back of my hand he was a friend of mine but he was a religious fruitcake. <laughs> he was in every meeting of the church. He was in everything that was going. He was always there. His kids looked like they were half-starved and neglected, and his wife looked worse. And, you know, he was just so over the fence about his Christianity that he was a mockery to the whole deal. <laughs> this fellow says, do you know him? I thought, oh, God... <laughs> The saddest day of my life, you know, he said to me, very similar to what Mahatma Gandhi said. He said, I can understand about Christ. He said, I can understand about the gospel. He said, but he said, I can't handle you Christians. He said, I love you and I respect you. He said, and I can't say anything against you. But he said, 